He said, look, I don't like watches very much because watches constrict me. Me as an artist, they fence me in. Time fences me in. I'm an artist mainly and not a watch designer. In this episode, I'm joined by one of the great masterminds in IWC history. He began working in IWC in 1972 and was responsible for marketing and sales in 1976. During this time of change and challenge, he was not only responsible for a series of major innovations to IWC's product line and brand positioning, but also worked with the genius behind the Ingenieur watch, Mr. Gerald Genta. In the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to talk about Genta as a colleague, as well as what the watch industry was like in the 70s. And I'm honoured, truly honoured, to welcome Mr. Hannes Pantley. Hannes, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing, sir? Fine, thank you. How are you? Very good, thank you. And of course, the one thing that everyone's wondering out there, being a podcast, they're not going to know because they can't see you, but what have you got on the wrist today? It's a small watch starting price of IWC. It's called Grand mm-hmm. Complication. <laughs> and uh, I got it as a gift for my 50 years I, with IWC. Wow, unbelievable. <laughs> How many others have they given out for 50 years service? Do we know? Oh, I don't know. No. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there can't be that many others for 50 years service, surely. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, because it's I amazing. was actually, I was wearing this watch for, I would say, about eight years now. Wow. When it came, you know, when it came out, I took mm-hmm. the first one and since then I actually wear it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, Hannes, thank you so much for, for joining us, as I said. And and what we're going to do today is we're going to dive into a little bit about your background and we're going to talk about IWC in the 70s. And then, of course, we're going to move on to one of your colleagues and I believe a friend of yours, Mr. Genta, just to discuss what was going on at IWC at the time, because not many have the experience that you've had at IWC. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell us a bit about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you end up in watches? OK, I grew up in a little place called Dubendorf, but Dubendorf was the first official airport of Zurich and my father had a farm there and we were actually I grew up close to the airport this is why I was always very close to aviation and uh, it was also my idea then to start with the old Junkers you know because the chief engineer of Junkers normally overhauled the tractors of my father during winter time so this is why I was very close to aviation. I can, believe it or not, I can actually remember having a flight many years ago on one of those Junkers. Not the one that crashed, I believe, a couple no, years later. I but not. <laughs> I, I was, I was on, I was, on, I was on the other one, which, which was equally concerning because there was a big group of us from the media that had the chance to fly around from Zurich Airport, and uh, and I believe at one point we had a, a lady take the, the the wheel at the cockpit coming through the mountains, which uh, and there was no temperature. Of course, there's no warmth on the cockpit, which I wasn't uh, aware of uh, until I got up there. But it was quite an experience in the Yonkers. So, um, it really is. And as you said, you know, we tried to fly around the world. Actually, uh, the beginning, the first idea was we had a marketing meeting in Singapore and we were introducing a new pilot's watch. And we said, how could we introduce a pilot watch in the Far East? 
So I thought of the Junkers, but I thought that we would dismantle the plane, ship it to Hong Kong, assemble it again. But when I talked to the pilots, they said, well, IWC, if you pay, we fly. And of course, it took them three weeks. Every day they flew from morning to night to go from Zurich to Bangkok. And uh, we from Schaffhausen joined them then in Bangkok. And uh, from there, I joined them. I flew with them to Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and Hong Kong. This was really an amazing event. Wow. And you were wearing the watch, I take it, while you were flying with them, just to make sure it sure. survived. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, you, how did you get into watches then? What, what was your connection to actually working, taking that first job in, back in the 70s at RWC? You know, in Switzerland, normally when you're 15 or 16 years old, from your godfather, you get a watch. And I was in boarding school, and so everybody got his watch. Everybody got a different brand. And one of my colleagues got an IWC Schaffhausen. And nobody mm. of, the, of the other friends of the colleagues knew what that was. And one guy said, what the heck did you get? And he said, look, <laughs> boys, if you don't know what IWC Schaffhausen is, that's your problem. And I never forgot that. And when many, many years later I was contacted by a headhunter and he mentioned the name IWC Schaffhausen, I said, okay, I have to go there. I have to have a job interview. And uh, that's how it started. Ah, interesting. Amazing. So give us a picture, Hannes, of what life was like both um, at RWC and in the watch industry and in society back in the 70s, because it, was, it wasn't just a turbulent time in, in, in the watch world. Well, actually, you know, when I, jo I joined in 72, and uh, I can say when I started, that was the beginning of the crash. It was the beginning of the big watch crisis, which was not only people think it's quartz watches, of course, it was also course watches but mainly it was something that was called the Treaty of Bretton Wood that for 30 years regulated the exchange rates between dollar and European currencies. Also, mm. the gold price was fixed, and then this was given up by the US, and everything collapsed. Our gold watches, within a year, tripled its prices in foreign countries. This was the beginning of the end. Nobody knew exactly what will be the future. And uh, in this time, I did my first selling trips and I realized that our collection was really not what it should be because they were too thick, they were old-fashioned, but it was very difficult, you know, to when I came back from trips as a new, as a new boy on the, on the there, You know, the companies in Switzerland, and not only in Switzerland, were, let's say, organized in a very military way. And uh, mm -hmm. when I tried to talk to the management, they just said, look, please follow the chain of command. And nobody wanted mm -hmm. to discuss with me. And then I met a member of the supervisory board of IWC, who was not only on the supervisory board, but he was also the uh, owner of the advertising agency that worked for IWC. And he was the first one that listened to me. And we quickly realized we need new lines, new collections, and mainly 
mainly in steel because financially mm -hmm. we were practically bankrupt. I, yeah, I may say without bragging, I saved the company with the new markets with the Middle East. I was actually creating four to five new collections every year, jewelry watches, jewelry sets, which I sold from Kuwait to Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah, Oman, and these countries have saved IWC, but the problem was financially, yes, but there were very few pieces, very limited editions, because they were very expensive, and so there was no work for the factory. So we said, if we want to really survive with the factory, we need to have steel watches that we can produce again in quantities. And that's why then uh, the idea came of the SL line, but and then as I would say, as the number one of the SL line came, of course, the engineer. Mm -hmm. And I was discussing it with that Mr. Ott, who was at the supervising board, and he understood right away, and that was the first time that the name Gerald Chanter was mentioned. And but don't forget Gerald Chanta was an artist, a designer. He was not known in Switzerland. Might sound strange. He really became famous when he started with his own company, with his own brand. Mm -hmm. He normally charged per design one thousand five hundred Swiss francs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you compare it to today, if I would ask you, do you know a famous watch designer? that lives today and designs today, it would be difficult. But with his own brand, he became very famous. And then, of course, everybody was talking about two other famous steel watches that he designed. So it's interesting, actually, that you and your activity in various parts of the world, saving the brand in the 70s, actually selling watches that were, were, were very much not in the plan of F.A. Jones, because F.A. Jones founded the business in this belief that production could be uh, systematized, you know, volume could be produced, but you were having to, to sell what you could sell to those markets to keep the business afloat. Exactly. We had very many different models but actually, there were only four watches that had a name. This was the Engineer, was the Aqua Timer, the Diver's Watch, and uh, mm -hmm. the Yacht Club, and the Da Vinci. But the Da Vinci, as you know, was a quartz watch then, with the Beta 21 mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. But all the other watches just had numbers. And we said, out of these four watches, we have to pick one that has an interesting name and on which we can base the new steel collection which was, of course, was the SL collection then and uh, with the, the first engineers. But the result is perfect. And tell us about the result. So when he produced that first uh, drawing and presented it to you guys, what was the response like? You know, I mean, he was actually, what was Mr. Genta told was we want a round watch, steel, and it has to have the characteristics of our classical engineer. Means special protection against magnetism, and the movement must be on rubber cushions to make it extra shockproof. And that, of course, automatically, the result was a very, I would say, thick for those days, a very thick watch or bulky watch, when the trend in general was towards flat watches. And mm -hmm. uh, so 
the result, let's say, uh, at the beginning was, yeah, well, it was people were a little bit reluctant. It took some time till people understood really the value of this new watch and of this new design, which has become probably the most famous and most perfect designed watch that IWC ever had. What was it like to work with Mr. Genta? Did you enjoy working with him? Did the team find it easy to work with him? He says it himself. He said, look, I'm not a watchmaker. I'm, okay, a designer, but basically I'm an artist. And he also, in his interview, in his last interview, he said, look, I don't like watches very much because watches constrict me, me as an artist. They fence me in time, fences me in. I'm an artist mainly and not a watch designer. That's his words, which is quite interesting. And how did those steel watches go down in the marketplace? Because, of course, your primary role was taking the products out to market. Can you remember those? First of all, it was very expensive. It was much more, was about the double price of a regular steel watch. So at the beginning, it needed some time till that category of steel watches came into the market and was successful. So mm-hmm. it was not that right from the beginning, everybody was jumping for joy. No, it took some time that people really understood the idea. As you know, we we had some other steel watches, which was the Polo Club and the... Golf Club? Yacht Club we had before. But at the same time, when we created this SL line, it was the Polo Club and the Golf Club. These were the two watches that we designed. And on top of that, we had the Da Vinci line, which was this TV shape, what we called it. They were quite successful, but it was also a little bit lower in price and people appreciated that very much. So in a way, you can say this new steel line have guaranteed the future of the factory, of the manufacture, because there were also trends in the management that we need more quartz watches, and that would have been the end of manufacturing. So we have realized pretty early that the only guarantee for the future is the mechanical movement, because otherwise we could close the factory. Absolutely. And Hannes, how how long did it take in your mind before the market started to appreciate this expensive steel, thicker steel sports watch? How many years after its initial launch did did you start to see the change? I would say it took probably about five years, four four to five years. Wow. We had some other uh, successful lines that helped, but it took some time till this type of steel watch really conquered the market. Absolutely fascinating. And how many years have you taken or been a part of or witnessed IWC at trade shows? Because I was taken back by how many years you'd been with it. Well, actually, I had my last or decisive job interview 51 years ago at the fair in Basel, at the trade fair in Basel. And today in Geneva, this is my 50th trade show I work for IWC. Unbelievable. And final question, as before I leave you, could you have believed 50 years ago that you would walk into the PAL Expo this year and see the popularity of watches in the world? Could you have believed it? No, I couldn't foresee that because don't forget, when I started, a good quality watch was accuracy and longevity. And accuracy with the upcoming of the quartz watches was not a big subject anymore. 
because this was normal. And in those years when I started, people bought an IWC from Schaffhausen as a watch for their life. You know, it's what you bought one watch and that lasted your life. It's not like today that you have several watches and depending on the occasion, you wear a different watch. I started to collect watches when I was, well, I think three months with the company. And uh, when we were taken over by Richmond, the museum of IWC was my private collection. And we had a misunderstanding because, well, actually, Richmond thought that the museum is part of the contract, but they realized that this is my private collection. And they convinced me then to sell it to them, which they said it's part of the history and they're right. And I said, that's that's Mm -hmm. okay now. I stopped collecting. Uh, That's enough. This was almost 20 years ago, but I have over 200 IWCs again. So, see... Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Is there, aside from the, uh, I have to ask, I have to ask, apologies, because I, I said it was my last question, but this is my last one. Apart from the SL, the Ingenieur, is there one watch, and of course the watch you're wearing on the wrist, is there one watch in that current collection of yours that's very special to you that you look back on with a real smile? Well, in the old days, people always, I mean, the journalists always ask, which is your favorite watch? And of course, years ago, we said the one that sells the best. But uh, I mean, personally, (laughs) I have to say there are two or three watches which uh, we have my personal stories. For instance, you know, the the years together with the Porsche family, then the creation of the Portuguese watch. I mean, these are things that are very close to me. And of course, it's out of and the pilot watches. It's out of these families that my favorite watches come the one that i collect i love that i love that that's what watches are all about is the people and the moments aren't they it's right if you don't mind one thing i have to say at the end there is a difference between watch collecting and speculating and there is a big difference and i'm a collector that's the ultimate way to finish, Anna. Thank you so, so much. I've got a sneaky suspicion that it's going to be a very, very big year for IWC this year. So thank you so much for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. See you. See you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening out there. And we will see you in the next uh, episode of Partners in Time. <laughs>